The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The residents of North Carolina's colonial backcountry must have felt as if they lived in their own world. Located in the central and western parts of the colony, these residents were sometimes a day or more's journey by horse and carriage from the nearest town, putting a cavern between them and the seats of power from which they were governed. Influence and wealth were concentrated in the larger cities, many of them on the coast, like Wilmington, Brunswick Town, and Newburn, which were all ports for entry and commerce. But one thing that did connect the residents of North Carolina, no matter where they lived, was the leadership that held an increasingly tight grip on their livelihoods. Under such royal governors as Arthur Dobbs and William Tryon, the skyrocketing demands of the crown in England were trickling down to its colonists, who bore the brunt of heavy taxes and an unbalanced justice system. This unbearable strain on everyday people, being exerted from thousands of miles away, would ultimately drive this collective of colonies to war with its own government. But in North Carolina's smaller communities, dissatisfaction with the whims of their leader and his representatives will reach a fever pitch well before the revolution, as a growing movement starts to take matters into its own hands. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents We're exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. 
Together, the Frasers land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. On this week's episode, we're taking a trip to Burlington to revisit the Battle of Alamance, an early confrontation in North Carolina history that saw controversial royal governor William Tryon clash with an unyielding faction of his own people, known as the Regulators. Tired of a system that fattened the pockets of Tryon and his well-connected officials, the Regulators, who hailed from the backcountry and western portions of the colony, began a campaign of unrest that would threaten the already fragile state of North Carolina. They rioted in towns, disrupted courts and official meetings, and violently assaulted those loyal to Tryon, all in an open defiance of the governor that would ultimately lead to bloodshed in 1771. Last week on the show, we detailed the life and leadership of Tryon, where he came from, and the impact he had on the colony during his term as royal governor. For the regulators, Tryon did not represent the needs that defined their lives, which they lived far from his homes in Brunswick Town and later Newburn, which would become the site of an indulgent capital city palace that he partially funded through a tax on his constituents. All of this created a divide in North Carolina that only festered with time, leading to a confrontation at Alamance in 1771 that put Tryon's ego and the regulator's determination on full display. In the Outlander series, readers and viewers will know the Battle of Alamance as the crescendo of the tumultuous relationship between Jamie Fraser and Tryon, the man who granted he and Claire their land in western Carolina that will become Fraser's Ridge. What happens at Alamance will force the entire Fraser family to face the realities of war and grapple with an understanding that an even bigger battle is on the horizon. But for more than two centuries, the Battle of Alamance has been called an opening shot of the American Revolution. Is that true? And were some of Outlander's more traumatic on-screen depictions of the battle based on fact? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Episode 5, The Spark of Rebellion. To talk about the Battle of Alamance and how it would have played out in real life, I'm joined today by Jeremiah D. Gennaro, Site Manager for Alamance Battleground State Historic Site in Burlington. Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, before we jump into the battle, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners where Alamance is and why this specific area would have been important in 1771 when we see this uh, clash between Tryon's forces and the regulators. 
Yeah, we're located in Burlington, North Carolina, uh, right in the middle of Alamance County. And uh, the county is uh, partially named after the battle. The battle itself is named after Great Alamance Creek, which is where Governor Tryon and his militia camped prior to the battle. It was also the closest body of water to where the battle took place. And it is almost in the heart of what in 1771 was considered regulator country, where there was a lot of support for this regulator movement among backcountry farmers in, uh, when I say the backcountry, uh, what I'm really talking about is uh, like the the middle portion of North Carolina, west of the, the coastal plain in areas that now today are uh, modern day um, Orange, Guilford, uh, Alamance, Randolph County, Davidson County, kind of along that I-85 corridor uh, between like the, the Durham Hill area all the way down to Charlotte. That area was a an enclave of support of this regulator movement in 1771. So why was this area important? Because it was so centralized? Yeah, um, the, it was really an important area because there was so much movement of European settlement in the 1750s and 1760s. This was the area where a lot of people were looking either uh, westward, if they were in eastern North Carolina, or increasingly likely, people were looking southward, uh, places like Pennsylvania, where land was beginning to become quite expensive. They were looking down toward North Carolina, seeing that land could be gotten somewhat cheaply. And so there's this huge influx of immigration. Uh, down the Great Wagon Road through the Shenandoah Valley. And this is a, a really a, a hot spot in North Carolina of a lot of settlement. And it ends up bringing new people into the backcountry. And it also creates a lot of friction among these new arrivals and a sort of um, landed wealthy elite who control the access to the land. They control the positions of power. And it's that friction between small landholders and the people who are in power that really drives the regulator movement, um, starting in the mid-1760s and then, of course, culminating in the Battle of Alamance in 1771. So it's a clash of classes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a really um, helpful to look at it that way. When you look at the people who are signing uh, petitions and who they are signing petitions, uh, who those petitions are directed at, um, it is definitely a, a group of small farmers that are protesting among a speculator class who not only own the land, but they also control the positions of power. Uh, and so a class really does drive a lot of the uh, friction between these two groups. So let's talk about the battle. And first, we kind of have to talk about who the regulators were in the Outlander series. We hear so much about this destabilizing threat posed by the regulators against Royal Governor William Tryon. He recruits Jamie Fraser to help squash it. And ultimately, this movement is tied directly to, to Jamie's godfather, Murtaugh Fitzgibbons. But who really were the regulators? And was this strictly a Scottish cause? as it kind of is deemed to be in Outlander. Yeah, that that is one thing that if you're watching the the TV show on Outlander, it's easy to maybe get the the understanding that everybody in the backcountry is Scottish, and certainly a lot of Scottish people had been settling in the backcountry at that time, uh, and there are quite a few who do get involved in the regulator movement. It's important to note with all these people moving into the backcountry, it is an area that is uh, more ethnically diverse, uh, where you have the the people who are in power are predominantly English. 
English. And then you have poorer farmers who are uh, predominantly Scottish. And then you have a lot of German immigrants that are coming in as well. So, you know, on the show, um, all the regulators have Scottish accents. Uh, I thought it would have been funny uh, if, you know, they had thrown in a few German accents in there as well. Because, you know, you've got like Ludwigs and and Tobiases who are um, uh, signing regulator petitions. But the population of the backcountry is, you know, pretty ethnically diverse at, at that time. And what's really interesting about the regulator movement is just how big it becomes and how it, it does not just encompass one group. It really transcends a lot of different groups. Um, one uh, historian who looked at this fairly recently, um, Dr. Mary Elaine Cars, wrote a book called Breaking Loose Together, and she looked at one of the ways in which the regulators stood out from the uh, the people who were in power. And if you look at their religious principles, you have a lot of Quakers, a lot of Baptists, New Light Presbyterians, German Pietists. You have all of these dissenters who are sort of banding together and they, they don't have a problem uh, protesting against an established power. And only this time in the regulator movement, they're taking some of these religious ideas and uh, they are putting them towards economic realities that they're dealing with uh, as, you know, uh, small farmers who are, are trying to, you know, fight off this, uh, this landed class of uh, land speculators. And what that does is it, it puts all of these backcountry farmers who are to the west of the, the people in power in the east at, uh, at opposition with each other. And it makes it very difficult for Governor Tryon to maintain control. Um, because uh, remember in the show, you know, Tryon is he's in Wilmington, he's later in New Bern, he's all the way off on the coast, and we're talking about stuff that's happening hundreds of miles away, you know, 250 years ago. Uh, it, it takes a long time for information to even get to him. Uh, so that gives the regulators uh, a lot of ability to disrupt the the power system in the backcountry. So in the show, there are depictions of riots. There are um, some of these you know wealthy, powerful people who are getting beaten up, and and that's all true. That that is something that that happens um, now. They, they do make sure in the show to talk about how uh, Jamie is having to hunt down his godfather, Murta, uh, as the leader of the regulator movement. Uh, it is important to note that Murta is essentially um, taking on kind of a composite character role in that uh, part of the story. Um, he is taking on the uh, attributes of a couple different regulator leaders. James Hunter is one who was sort of like the organizer and was uh, uh, really a a good consensus builder um, who lived in modern day Guilford County. And then Herman Husband, who was sort of the intellectual leader of the regulators. And Herman Husband is the guy who Governor Tryon actually does make attempts to arrest. Uh, so that is a, a part of the story in Outlander that is somewhat true, um, even though Governor Tryon is successful in apprehending Herman Husband. It's actually not that hard. He just, you know, sends someone to go get him and, and he's arrested. It's, it's not quite as complicated uh, or as dramatic as the way it's shown in the TV show. Well, the drama's got to keep the story going. <laughs> Murtaugh's got to be a little bit more uh, slippery than that to keep it going. Well, and, and that's interesting because, you know, if you have to kind of encapsulate the regulator movement and, and what it's trying to do, what is their biggest motivation heading into the Battle of Alamance? Heading into the battle, they are trying to compel the governor to meet with them 
and to listen to them. It's a movement that had started in around 1766, and this battle is five years later. And, you know, it, it might be surprising to some or not surprising to some to know that this organized movement, this protest movement, is essentially unlistened to for five years, where they are identifying problems uh, of, of corruption among local officials. They're asking for things to be changed, but no changes are being made. And it's that failure to make change that drives the frustration that ultimately leads to violence and extra-legal activity, those riots that the regulators are a part of. And it that, of course, then begets more violence where Governor Tryon is, is raising this militia, calling volunteers, and, and actually fighting an open battle. But even up to the last night before the battle, the regulators are sending petitions, and in the final petition that they send, they are asking just for a meeting. They want to be able to air their grievances. Um, of course, they're hoping that, you know, by showing the governor that they've got thousands of people aligned with their cause, they might be able to intimidate him into making some concessions. Ultimately, they fail at that. But really, they are just trying to uh, have their voices heard and try to affect change in any way that they can. Well, and speaking of the people they have on their side, we see that Jamie is aligned with William Tryon, as as has been the case since he got to the colonies. Would there have been real Scottish people on Tryon's side? Because a lot of Scottish did remain loyal to the king, and obviously your royal governor is that representative for the king in North Carolina. Yeah, there, there were Scottish people who are aligned with Governor Tryon. They would not have shown up at the Battle of Alamance. It's actually only a couple days later, the uh, Cumberland County Militia, which had been raised as part of this drive to get volunteers for, the, for Governor Tryon's militia, that the people from that Cross Creek area, which is predominantly Scottish, and if you look at the roster, you see lots of uh, Campbells, uh, you've got lots of Scottish names. They actually arrive with the militia, and they accompany him on the second part of his expedition after the Battle of Alamance. They weren't at the battle exactly, but they were there sort of uh, as part of that overall military expedition. And, you know, a lot of that speaks to the way in which while the regulators are very popular in the backcountry, when people hear about the, the riots, about the beating up public officials, they feel that that has gone too far. And when the governor calls out troops or, um, you know, calls for volunteers, there are a lot who do heed that call. We've spoken about Governor Tryon and who he was in Tryon Palace in our previous episode, but what are his motivations of keeping this rebellion at bay? Now, I understand making sure that your, you know, the people of North Carolina are, you know, adhering to laws and certainly not calling you out and telling you all the things that are wrong. But we learn in the show and certainly in real life that Governor Tryon is on his way out. He He's about to take up the governorship in New York. So why was it so important for him, for all intents and purposes, as a lame duck governor in those final moments of his governorship here in North Carolina to show this kind of massive show of strength against something that his successor could have just dealt with. Yeah, that that becomes the question after the Battle of Alamance, all after all these people die, is like why why did he do this and um, you know create open warfare in the backcountry? We don't exactly know. He doesn't really lay out what his thinking is. 
but it seems pretty clear that he wanted to leave North Carolina in a better place than he found it for his successor, Josiah Martin. He um, he didn't want to have any loose ends for him to have to tie up. And so he really wanted to finish this regulator rebellion and kind of settle the question once and for all before leaving. And it, that that much is clear in his time frame after the battle where he uh, spends a few weeks marching through the regulator settlements, taking oaths of allegiance and really putting that that movement down, you know, pretty severely. And really as soon as that is over and done with and the ringleaders uh, or uh, excuse me after there are trials for treason and hangings in Hillsboro he really spends like one more day with the militia and then he just goes straight to the coast hops on a boat and then goes to New York really amazing how quickly that takes place after all of this very dramatic you know military movement through North Carolina you know we talk about egos. And it feels like this was a, a way to kind of satiate his own ego of, of being able to address something that was very much pointed at him and his leadership for the final months of his governorship. Yeah, he he seemed like he was a very ambitious man. He had previous military experience and had served in the Seven Years' War as an officer, and he was not afraid to apply military solutions to political problems. And that is one of the main reasons why the Battle of Alamance even takes place is because he goes to the trouble of putting the army together, raising the volunteers, asking for artillery, drawing up a battle plan. Um, and, and that seems to be something that was unique to him, where uh, his predecessor, or excuse me, his successor, Josiah Martin, ends up being a little bit more savvy politically and applies political solutions to political problems. It's an interesting one-two punch that Tryon and Martin were there at the end of the colonial period of North Carolina. They were, they were quite the pair, I guess yeah, you could call them. Very much so. A real odd couple. One thing I've always found curious in, in watching Outlander, and, and I've watched it a lot in the lead-up to this show, is you have these two, or really three, people in your arsenal, in Claire, Brienne, and Roger, who know the future, who have had the opportunity to bring with them information about the future that can make their time in the 1700s a bit easier. But it is a huge plot point leading up to this battle that none of them can really think of what happens to the regulator movement. And they have to really rack their brain. And it is not until literal minutes before this battle that Brienne remembers of the Battle of Alamance. And so I'm curious, is it true that this battle and this movement were pretty unspoken of? Or is that more of a plot device? Because I remember this in in my upbringing, but I also grew up in North Carolina. So what is the relationship of this battle to the larger story of the Revolutionary War and this colonial period? 
Yeah. Um, if Brie had gone to school in North Carolina, I would have bought her remembering the Battle of Alamance or the Regulators at some point. But one of the main things that we hear today from visitors to Alamance Battleground State Historic Site is, I never learned about this. Um, I never heard about this in school. And if you didn't grow up in North Carolina, I didn't. I grew up in California. I never heard about the Regulators until I came here. And that's really the case with a lot of non-North Carolinians. And I, I know they, uh, in the show, they, they wanted to have a little bit of, uh, a little bit of exploration of that, you know, that theme of knowing what the future is and, and how that affects your decisions in the present. But I was, I, I was a little bit disappointed to be honest, because the, the books handle that in a, a really uh, poetic way. Um, and in the books, Diana Gabaldon writes it so that Bree is back at camp. Roger has left. Jamie has marched off. And she just kind of has this little panic. And she she says, it's not in the history books. Not, nothing, nothing should happen because, you know, if something happened, then we would know about it. It would be in the history books. But this isn't in the history books. And that's a lot more true to how people learn about the Battle of Alamance and the Regulator Movement. This is definitely an unsung moment in North Carolina history. And in the attempt to kind of sing the importance of this unsung conflict, a lot of people have tried to make it part of this much larger historical event. The, the Revolutionary War and the American Revolution, when it does not really match up chronologically, uh, it does not match up um, in the political goals of the regulators, um, and there are there are a few reasons why that is. I can go into more detail about that, but essentially, what the regulators are fighting over, what they are organizing against, it does not have to do with the price of tea. It doesn't have to do with British imperial structure or the taxation system. It really is about local politics. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've heard that expression, all politics are local. Um, and that is really true of the regulator movement where they see corruption among a sheriff, a, a register of deeds, you know, for Orange County. Um, it's really small but very important positions where they see their their rights as British subjects being infringed upon. And they are looking for those rights within the British system. They're not advocating for independence. They're not saying that they would be able to run things better themselves. Um, they're not looking for you know anything else other than a little bit more direct democracy in the form of like secret ballots and also just better representation. Um, but that representation isn't something that the American Revolution brings necessarily. So, you know, we have a monument at Alamance Battleground that says this is the first battle of the revolution. That's really because it's fought four years before Lexington and Concord. But if you look at what they're fighting over, it's not the same things. And, uh, you know, North Carolinians, of course, want this moment to be well known and appreciated by the country at large. Um, and we can do that, but we, we don't have to tie it to the Revolutionary War in, uh, in order to talk about how this is kind of a significant moment in, you know, agrarian uprisings and, and organizing uh, among small farmers. I think that's what the show is 
trying to grapple with. They're so firmly set on the war is four years from now. So this can't be that big of a deal. This can't be that big of a situation. And so tying these two things that don't have to be, you know, the same movement is is where they're going to find that blind spot that Claire and Roger and, and Brianna really um find themselves in in 1771. Now, to move closer to the battle, you mentioned earlier that there is correspondence between Tryon and the Regulators right up until the battle is going to begin. Now, we see this in the show and in the books because we have Murtaugh on the side of the Regulators. So what would have been in those correspondence letters, and what were the Regulators and Tryon trying to do in those last moments? Was it just trying to get an audience with each other? This was my favorite part of the whole season uh, for season five, because they show they show Governor Tryon not um, reading out loud, but reading and reacting to the the regulators petition. And he references one of the lines from that petition where they they kind of chide him and they say the lives of his majesty's subjects are not toys or matters to be trifled with. Like you're playing with human lives right now. That is that is from the regulators' final petition that they sent the night before the battle. And I, I almost got chills watching this in the show when Murta is reading Tryon's response and, and they kind of cut back and forth where it, with Tryon dictating the response. That is William Tryon's actual letter that was written to the regulators in response to their petition where he was saying that you you need to to disperse now you you have forced my hand i've got no other choice uh but to use force and the only way that you will prevent an effusion of blood is to disperse and to uh surrender up your ringleaders that is the message that gets uh read to the uh regulators like an hour before the battle, they go around to these different groups of regulators before the battle has started. They start reading this thing. And according to the accounts that we have that that were written closest to the battle, the response to that um, message from Tryon from the regulators is shouts of battle, battle. They shout fire and be damned. Uh, there are regulators who um, start approaching the militia and they open up their their shirts uh, and burying their chests, basically to saying, like, if you're here, you want to fight a battle, go ahead and, and fire into us. And so, you know, looking at the the two sides, how they're communicating, they're kind of communicating past each other. So I think that's one of the reasons why it ultimately ends in bloodshed here is because those two groups are kind of talking past each other. And, and to a certain extent, William Tryon had kind of made up his mind about what he was going to do. Um, but then the regulators didn't really help things by saying like, OK, go ahead, come on, let's let's start this thing. How quick was the Battle of Alamance? Yeah, that's a great question um, because this was not the first time Tryon had called out militia in response to the regulators. He had done it before in 1768, and they had managed to avoid a battle. So I think there probably were a lot of people thinking, you know, it's not going to come to this. There, it's not going to be a battle. And if there is a battle, it's not going to be a, a big deal. But by 18th century standards, this is a really, really big deal. At the time of the battle, there are about 2,000 regulators that are uh, congregated against Governor Tryon. Tryon has about 1,000 men. 
So he's outnumbered two to one, but every single one of his men has a musket. He has eight artillery pieces. He went to great trouble to build this army. And when the battle starts, you've got 3,000 people that are involved. Ultimately, the regulators who are unarmed uh, or who run out of ammunition, they're going to quit the field first. And then all of that artillery is going to wound a lot of regulators on the other side. And of course, if you look at the way that people remember battles, uh, time does really weird things where it feels like a long time when maybe it was pretty short. Um, so keep that in mind. But Governor Tryon estimates that the first phase of the battle, which is kind of two positions firing at each other from two opposing hillsides, he estimates that at about 45 minutes. And after that point, as the regulators start to weaken and they start to leave the field, Governor Tryon orders his militia forward. That phase of the battle goes on for another hour. And he estimates that the battle itself takes about two hours. What tells me that that is uh, probably a pretty good estimate of time uh, is that he is keeping track of uh, time throughout his campaign journal. And he's saying things about like when they leave camp, when they arrive to the battlefield, when they get back to camp. And so I think it probably is uh, close to two hours of fighting that ultimately leaves uh, 60 militia wounded, nine militia killed, and then estimates of 100 to 200 regulators killed and wounded, which for the 18th century is really a, a huge uh, battle, especially given that these are not professional armies. You've got North Carolinians with guns just kind of shooting at each other, um, and then a few cannons thrown into the mix. Uh, it's a very serious thing uh, that happens and would have looked a lot more like uh, a battle than, say, a, a mob or a riot. Yeah, this this isn't just a backcountry brawl. This is a uh, this this was serious. Not by any means. Yeah, there were officers. There's a battle plan. It, it was very much a battle, uh, it, at least on Governor Tryon's side. After the battle, we see this very symbolic moment of Jamie tossing his red coat on the ground, which Tryon has forced him to wear, and and kind of swearing off what was just done because. His biggest defender, his biggest supporter in Murtaugh has just been killed. Did this moment and did Tryon's need to squash this with military action cause any of his supporters to defect how, uh, how Jamie does in this moment? Well, it's not literally accurate because, you know, red coats are expensive and this was a volunteer militia. North Carolina is a poor colony. You do the math. They didn't have red coats. They're just wearing the clothes that they had from home. But if you look at the red coat symbolically as kind of putting on the vestments of just British power and aligning yourself with the royal government, that is something that happens among North Carolina's elite. And the taking off of that, that red coat, again, symbolically, does happen where, you know, after Tryon has left, after these people have been killed in the Battle of Alamance, there are a lot of people who had been loyal to Tryon and had even sort of supported the militia expedition who write after the fact, and they're highly critical of Governor Tryon, saying that it was unnecessary, blood did not need to be shed. And it's important to note that a lot of these people who align with Tryon out of political expediency and seeing that order needed to be kept in some way, that, you know, what regardless of how you felt about 
the the British government in general, the regulators represented more of a threat to the Eastern elite than Governor Tryon did. So a lot of these people who aligned themselves with Tryon and supported his army or served in his army in 1775 and 1776 became the revolutionary leaders of North Carolina. So a good example of this is uh, Richard Caswell, North Carolina's first revolutionary governor. He's an officer who is in charge of, I think it's the Dobbs County militia, and he is on the battlefield at Alamance shooting at regulators. Uh, Likewise, Francis Nash, who is in the Orange County militia as an officer, shooting at regulators, he becomes an officer in the Continental Army. And so they do have this sort of change in political allegiance where in 1771, they're loyal to Governor Tryon and they are helping to um, ensure that British authority is maintained. But as soon as the revolution comes and they're the ones who are able to lead it, then they cast off that red coat and they strike out on their own independently. So maybe that's where the connection is that people see today. You know, as you said, you have the monument at the battleground that says the first battle of the or the first battle of the revolution. You know, can you see the connections there because it leads people who were on the ground at Alamance to take either a more active or a different stance in the war that comes four years later. I would love to see a little bit more discussion among these historical characters referencing the regulators and and showing that they were, you know, thinking about this, that that's not there. So they, there's not a lot to say, here's, here's why they were thinking this way. Here's why they had Alamance and the regulators in the backs of their heads. It's all conjectural. And while I I wouldn't say that Alamance is the first battle of the revolution, I would say it is a battle of the revolutionary era and no historical event exists in a vacuum. So I can't say that they're completely unrelated because there are things that happen at Alamance that do affect decisions that are made further on. Um, And the the best way that I can describe it is that... um, In a lot of places in colonial America, North Carolina especially, when the revolution comes, there is a lot of conflict, not between colonists and the British, but between colonists who think one way and colonists who think another way. And Alamance is a great example of infighting among colonists in North Carolina that creates these tensions and these fissures in society. And after Alamance, everyone thinks that they've been covered up. But as soon as things start going sideways in 1775, and by the time you get to Morris Creek in 1776, all of those divisions are reopened and you have fighting that continues on. It shows just how complicated the revolutionary, revolutionary era was and how difficult it was to pick sides. And even if you were on one side at one moment in time, that didn't mean that you weren't going to have a change of heart later on. That calls to mind the the stance that I know a lot of historians take that the Revolutionary War was our first civil war. On, on that note, can I actually share a, a story, kind of a a historical uh, a historical analog to Jamie and Murta 
and their their interesting story where you have family members on opposite sides at Alamance. We actually have an example of that where um, one of the regulator leaders is a friend of Herman Husband. His name is William Butler. He's one of the regulator leaders who's outlawed as a result of the, the actions at Alamance. He has to flee North Carolina, uh, barely escapes with his life. His brother, John Butler, is the uh, at one time he's the sheriff of Orange County. He's a lieutenant in the Orange County militia at Alamance, and they would have been on opposite sides on that battlefield. Um, and it's really interesting because John Butler's letters have survived. And after that battle in 1771, he spends the next few years writing to the people in power saying, please, will you pardon my brother, William? Um, he's left North Carolina. Um, you know, he's he's not going to be a threat anymore. And he tries to get uh, a pardon for his brother and maintains a little bit of correspondence with with them. So it actually, you know, it it ends in a similarly kind of bittersweet way uh, to to Jamie and Murta, where William Butler is is never given that uh, that pardon, but they do maintain a correspondence, and, and you know, luckily one doesn't kill the other or, or have to kind of hold uh, you know someone as they're dying on the battlefield. But uh, it, it is an interesting note where that instance of people in one family being on opposite sides was something that uh, we do have historical evidence for. There's something poignant about family members meeting on a battlefield. Now, the last thing I'll ask you is. Alamance is a really fortunate part of history in the context of Outlander because most of these events that lead up to the revolution and the events that happen in the years before it, they don't get much screen time. They don't get much talked about. Um, But Alamance is given its whole episode in the show. It's a huge part of the books. And so what has that exposure in such a beloved story done for interest at your state historic site? It has been almost life-changing the way that we have gotten, you know, not not just attention because, you know, that that's one thing and we can quantify that in visitation or, you know, people shopping in the gift shop and all that. But along with that kind of attention, there is this deep affection and love that we get from Outlander fans that is... It's unlike anything I have ever encountered in my uh, public history career, and it, it really is wonderful. It's a, a great relationship that we have. Um, we we love the um, the amount of affection that we get from people who are um, just you know fans of either this book or our television series, and it's it's something that that we try to you know pay back by uh, going to um, Outlander conferences and conventions. Uh, we've been to the the Fraser's Ridge Homecoming event the past several years uh, out in Western North Carolina. That's always a great time, and always have really good conversations with fans and. It has been something that really has been 
so critical for us because we are an unsung historical moment. Um, I always tell people when they say, you know, how has Outlander affected your site? I'll tell them about our two main groups of visitors. And it's either people who have done their genealogy and they have found someone who signed a regulator petition and they want to find out more about the regulator movement. So that's one, an actual family connection. And the second group is Outlander fans, because this is one of the main ways that people encounter this historical moment. And, you know, Diana did such an amazing job with her, including primary sources. Her research was very sound. And of course, she needed to make some changes to, uh, you know, fit Jamie and Claire uh, and Roger and Bree into the story. But all of the ways in which they fit into the story have these different historical analogs. And they're all these different interesting things where we can point and say, well, here's here's a version of that that happened with with actual people. And it's it's really cool to to point out the ways in which this, you know, pop culture phenomenon has uh, followed a, a lot of the story pretty accurately. It's kind of poetically beautiful that a story about Claire, Roger, Brianna not being able to remember the Battle of Alamance has actually made it even more present and raised its awareness for people. It, it has. It, it's, it, it's not lost on me that this, this unsung moment in history is now a lot more visible uh, thanks to the way that it was handled in, in this book and in the television show. Well, I'm glad that you get to have conversations with fans about what was real and, and what was well represented in this story and keep that conversation going because you get to tell stories like the butlers and get to tell them to people who want to listen because they've already really found personal and emotional connection to this story. So uh, I would encourage everyone to go visit the Alamance Battleground State Historic Site in Burlington. Go join fellow Outlander fans and people who are doing their genealogy, whatever gets you there. It's a great site, and I would encourage you all to go visit it. Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining me and, uh, and talking about the, the battle. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week when we will turn our focus to a figure that was just recently featured on the Outlander TV series, who has a history in colonial North Carolina, a woman by the name of Flora McDonald. We'll also take some time to discuss a few other folks that you might recognize from the series and your history books. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design 
and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.